I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Hey, Fitz. How's your day going? Slightly undercaffeinated, but good. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I can change that. I know that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm almost having the opposite problem now, but... (laughs) Um, But, you know, we're here on the Zoom. My phone's, like, ringing in my pocket and setting up all this technology to chat with you now. I was, it made me wonder, Fitz, if you, if you ever think you could go back to a simpler time, you know, before the Zoom, before the cell phones. Yeah. Do you ever, are you someone that has that urge often? Um, yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling I, you'd say that. I, I won't lie. Not, you know, it's like, it's funny. I, first off, I don't feel old and I don't think I am old by age. I'm right in the middle. So please take that with some knowledge as I tell the story. But um, the other day I was doing some adult stuff and I was like figuring out how to get a new ID. We've got like a lock box, like a fireproof box. We keep like everything, like our passports in, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I opened it up and I happened to find all these letters that I had written back up that she had saved and she'd stashed them away in this lock box. And it was kind of funny because the week earlier, I was looking through photos for the diaries to post on social media, and I found all the letters she had written to me when we were back in our early 20s. Why were you writing each other letters? Were you, like, did you spend some of this time apart from each other? Well, I mean, first off, back in the day, Lauren, (laughs) when you were in love with somebody, you wrote them letters. No, it really was in those, like, early years of our relationship in the in the early aughts, it was a lot of times the easiest way for us to actually communicate. Before Becca ran duct tape and beer, she was a wildlife biologist, and she would do these seasonal jobs where she would spend four to five months stationed at a Forest Service cabin or like a state housing. Sometimes it'd be like Cal Fire uh, would have like a little dorm, but they'd be pretty far out there. And I, we had cell phones at that stage, but where she lived usually didn't have coverage. So talking on the phone in 2004 meant that she had to find a payphone or like drive into town. And email was kind of an equal pain in the ass at that stage. So a lot of times we just wrote. And when I say that out loud, that we would exchange (laughs) letters, it feels like I'm living 100 years ago or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of funny. And but it's only 20 years ago. And it does, it's a moment where I realize how much has changed in 20 years. Yeah, it's hard to remember what it was like uh, in the pre-cell phone era, but it sounds like Becca lived in some really cool oh, yeah. places. What were some of the coolest ones? Oh, there was this old, like, 1940s Forest Service cabin that was right on, like, the banks of the Deschutes River. Like, she could just go fish right out the door. 
and that was pretty cool. She lived on the the north side of of Mount Shasta, kind of next to this beautiful meadow. I mean, she worked all over the place from like Alaska to Arizona to like the Oregon coast. It was it was it was a pretty cool job. And I always think that her biggest complaint was probably the mice. Otherwise, it was thumbs up. Yeah, that's so cool. And I mean, it's interesting, right? How this idea of simplicity, even as our world is like continuing to race and get even more complex, the idea of the simple life, it really resonates with us. Still, I mean, thinking of this rustic cabin on the banks of the Deschutes, it's, I mean, it's like a painting, you know, like if I asked you to paint a picture of what it means to live simply, like that would be it. Yeah, there'd be like little smoke coming out of the chimney, like a quiet yeah. winter forest. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of us have imagined that living in a cabin, the sound of snow falling, sharing that solitude with somebody else. I think that's a, a world where details come alive, right? I think we end up asking ourselves that question, whether or not we've lived it in our life. Like, what would it be like to step out of the pace of the modern world, of the constant battle to capture our attention, which is happening all the time, everywhere now? What would happen to our minds, our perspectives, if we lived in the quiet of natural spaces? What would we notice about the world? What would we notice about ourselves? Those that we shared the moments with? I mean, that is why there is a whole internet genre called cottagecore, right? <laughs> like It's like people scrolling, looking at photos that inspire those thoughts. And I think a lot of us have imagined what it would be like to live in a remote cabin. What if I told you that there is a way to make that happen and that you could actually get paid to do it? I could live out cottagecore? <laughs> Tell me how. This does exist, and I don't think it exists in abundance, but there are a few lucky people who get paid to live this type of experience. And my friends Rob and Laura, they've been doing this for years. I want to know more. During the winter, Yosemite's high country, Tuolumne Meadows, it pretty much totally shuts down. The road crossing the Sierra, it closes, right? I think most people think nothing is happening up in Tuolumne during the winter because, like, very few visitors make the, like, 10-mile trek into the backcountry. But, of course, even though there's not a lot of visitors up there, there's still work to be done. Yeah, like, the park doesn't stop being the park, realistically, right? Yeah, there's all of this really interesting stuff going on there in the winter, and Rob and Laura are right in the center of it. And, Lauren, you were able to catch up with Rob and Laura right before they went into it meant tracking them down in a coffee shop. So there's a little bit of background noise that you might hear. Please forgive us. But it's worth it. So today, we bring you the Winter Rangers. A story about love, winter, and shoveling. What can two people learn about themselves, about each other, about a place they love after a decade plus of winters? I'm Fitz Cahal. I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. I'm going to go look for some job postings. And you're listening <laughs> to The Dirtbag Diaries. It was the early 1990s. 
and a teenage Laura Pilewski, then Laura Green, was on her way to California during a road trip with her family. My family, being from the East Coast, there were a few summers where they piled my, me and my two younger sisters in a station wagon, Chevy Chase style, which may not be a reference that many of your listeners know. And one summer, um, we went to Yosemite Valley, and a guy was just uh, beaming by the trailhead sign um, that said to John Muir Trail to Mount Whitney. And he asked if I could take his picture. And I think I must have been like only like 14 years old or something like that. And But there was just this glow in his eyes or face after compl- having completed this trail that we, I took his picture and didn't think much of it. Until years later, when she found herself working at an outdoor store near her home in Maryland. The store sold a guidebook to the John Muir Trail. And when Laura picked it up, she was instantly reminded of the elation she'd seen in that hiker. The only person I could talk into hiking with me was my youngest sister. We came out west and started our trip um, on the west side of Mount Whitney. Laura and her sister took their time getting acclimated. And on their second or third night, they set up camp at Guitar Lake near Mount Whitney. Right on the lake shore, right on the grass, in the alpine meadow, right where Eddie Ranger, <laughs> Eddie Good Ranger would tell you not to camp. This really nice, handsome uh, huh. young man came up to me. After explaining to Laura and her sister why they needed to move their campsite, Laura and the Cube Park Ranger struck up a conversation about Edward Abbey and the books that had inspired them. But soon, the ranger needed to get back to work, and so he set off for the summit of Mount Whitney to finish his patrol. And then the next day, on his way down, my sister and I were hiking up the trail, and um, it's like, hey, do you guys want to come over to the ranger station this evening for dinner? And I'm like, of course. Rob saw in Laura the same excitement that had recently brought him to the Sierra Nevada. Like Laura, I didn't really have an exposure to the outdoors growing up. Grew up just north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and my first exposure to the outdoors and the mountains was in a small ski area in western Pennsylvania called Seven Springs. And I, I couldn't ski, you know, and didn't know much about the outdoors, but they gave me a job for four bucks an hour, being on this ski safety patrol, telling people to slow down and not jump. <laughs> that gave me the experience that, wow, this is, this is something maybe that I, that I could pursue. After graduating from college with a degree in criminal justice, Rob moved to upstate New York to work on his skiing. He got a job on the ski patrol at Whiteface Mountain in Lake Placid, but he quickly started looking for bigger mountains and a way to make that passion his career. My first trip out west was in Zion National Park and got to talking to a park ranger and said, you know, how, how, how do I do this? And at that time, uh, the law enforcement angle was, was a good way to get in as a, as a seasonal ranger. So I went to the law enforcement training in, at UMass. And my first job with the Park Service was at a, a small park in South Central Colorado. Rob really liked his job at Great Sand Dunes National Monument. But when his boss got transferred to Sequoia Kings Canyon National Parks, he called Rob with an idea. That fall, he called me up and said, there's this wilderness ranger post at Sequoia Park. I, I think you'd be, be great for this job. said it's at a place called Crabtree Meadow, and I, I just think that you'd be great. I had never been to the Sierra before, but it sounded good to me. So I did what it took to fill out the, the right papers to get my application in, and sure enough, he hired me for the next summer. That day that I walked into 
Crabtree Meadow to start that first summer season, it was game over. I didn't have to look any further for any other job that I would I would want to do. Fell in love with the Sierra and I, I fell in love with park ranger work. And so that's how Rob found himself in his second year at Crabtree, talking to a pretty girl from Maryland who was camping where she shouldn't be camping. I wrote Rob a postcard um, it's misspelling our last name, Paluski, but it, somehow it made it to him, you know, pre-email, and we corresponded with uh, paper and pen for a year after that. After his summer season ended in the Sierra, Rob went back to Colorado to work on the ski patrol at Wolf Creek Resort. After a year of riding back and forth, Laura moved out to Colorado to be with Rob, and the next summer, she moved out to Sequoia Kings Canyon to work on the JMT. For more than 10 years, the newly married Pyluskis went back and forth between Wolf Creek in the winter and Sequoia and Kings Canyon in the summer. They loved both of their jobs and both of their communities, and they weren't in any hurry to leave. And then a friend of ours actually told us, you know, there's, there's these winter ranger jobs in Yosemite Park. We had never been there, and I, I didn't even know these jobs existed. And I was like, this sounds like something that would be right up our alley. Tuolumne Meadows is the hub of the high country of Yosemite National Park. Sitting at an average elevation of almost 9,000 feet, Tuolumne is miles away from the hustle and bustle of Yosemite Valley. In the summer, Highway 120 passes right through it, allowing drivers to cross the Sierra Nevada easily. But in the winter, that road closes, making Tuolumne accessible only by foot or by ski. And 50 years ago, the Park Service started sending winter rangers to Tuolumne Meadows to conduct snow surveys and be a resource to winter visitors. The post is incredibly isolated. And while being stuck in the middle of nowhere for months at a time might sound like a nightmare to some, to Rob and Laura, it sounded like a dream come true. So I made some calls and the, the couple who had the jobs at the time had just started. It was their first winter there. And he's, the boss said, you know, the jobs are, are filled. Each year, only two people hold these coveted positions. And usually it's a couple, which makes sense when you consider the pretty intimate nature of the job. And these couples, they tend to hold on to their spots for a while. Most of the couples that had been in the job before had been there for around five years, sometimes more. So Rob and Laura knew that it might be a while before the opportunity opened up but they couldn't shake the feeling of how special that opportunity would be. And I just kept calling every winter and lo and behold, in 2010, we were on a spring ski trip out here after our ski patrol seasons had ended in Colorado and the skiing was epic that May. And we called up the, the sub-district ranger at the time and said, hey, you know, we're interested in being the Tuolumne Winter Rangers. She says, your timing is perfect. Rob and Laura were in. In a few months, they'd have to pack up everything, including all the food and gear they'd need to spend months in the backcountry, and commit to a winter in the High Sierra. It was a little hard to leave the jobs we were very happy with in, in Colorado, and we were part of a community there, but it was also quite easy to, to jump on the opportunity to live in the wilderness of, of Yosemite for a winter. In their new jobs, Laura and Rob would manage a number of things. They'd do monthly snow surveys, and then they'd update an online blog with the conditions. They'd stock the Tuolumne Ski Hut and be a helpful hand to those brave enough to venture up there. They'd rely heavily on their skis to get around, which was one of the biggest draws of the job, especially for Rob. But that first winter, it wasn't exactly what they had in mind. 
uh, the previous rangers couldn't have prepared us for our first winter there which it didn't snow you know (laughs) until late january so we weren't really winter rangers we were more like like summer rangers yeah there was zero snow the road that usually closes by thanksgiving stayed open until january 17th that year okay people who otherwise wouldn't have a, a, a chance to see that part of Yosemite in the winter, give them a chance to drive to Tanaya Lake and put ice skates on. You could just see the, the elation on people's faces. So it was worth it to have that experience, to see that, people enjoying the park in, in sort of a unordinary kind of way. They had been hoping to ski, but instead they donned their ice skates and tried to enjoy the unique circumstances. If you woke up early enough in the morning, you could ice skate and listen to the sound of the frozen lake, which kind of sounds like a a whale is stuck underneath the water, making these crazy sounds of the expanding and contracting of the water underneath you. And um, that was a pretty wild experience to start our career. Eventually, the road did close, and Rob and Laura finished their winter season in isolation, just like they had hoped. Living and working in remote locations, they knew they could handle that. But they also knew that this would be a pressure test for their relationship. It's a very unique setting for a working and personal relationship to be snowbound in in Yosemite Park. We've always said that we would choose our relationship over the jobs if it ever came to the point where it's affected our relationship that deeply. Hopefully you'd recognize that, but... um, yeah, it's, it is definitely not something that for everybody. And um, I think we, we definitely have our time, just like any healthy human and partners, the relationship of any kind, you, you just need to learn when to give one another space and respect and just um, like a lot of things in life, just the, the outdoors will heal, heal, heal your emotions. Rob and Laura found that their skills and personalities balanced each other out. She's the scientist of the family. He takes the time to learn the flora and fauna. And I'm more into helping the visitors have a good experience in in the national parks. We know each other's strengths. And on on a personal level, the differences, I feel like, are important. We, We sometimes joke that either one of us will have a thought and verbalize it, and the other person will say, I was just thinking that same thing. We're like the same person. And after spending as much time together as we have, it, 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 there's some truth to that, but we're also individuals. I think we have this yin and yang relationship where I admire Rob's strength and no safety skills and kindness and passion for the park visitors and really, really putting that as one of the more important duties of, of ours out there. Rob's very patient and tolerant and well-grounded. And um, I think <laughs> between the two of us, we make one good park ranger. By the time their fifth year came around, they felt like they were just getting started. So they just kept going back and they kept discovering new things, even in the place they came to know so well. I mean, it's been hundreds of times that we've patrolled up and down Lumberdome, and no two times be or are the same, but because of the conditions, the weather, mindset, you know. So it never, to me, 
felt like uh, this this is getting old or we, we've experienced it so many times, maybe we should try something else because no no two times really are the same. Going up Lumber Dome, there's a south-facing forest with these beautiful red bark juniper contrasted against the bright, white, beautiful powdery snow that you're hopefully breaking trail through on a good year. And some years there'll be like flocks of cedar wax wings and other birds feeding on the juniper berries that just uh, leave littering of juniper branches and leaves on the ground and, you know, coyotes, scat, and like all, all the animals will flock to that south-facing slope for the sun in the wintertime. And and then the next year you won't see a single cedar. I mean, for years, but I think there's only one season that we really see that saw the cedar wax wings. Some years we hear the Townsend solitaire with its uh, little call, call notes, kind of like an owl, just a couple of notes that it makes in the wintertime. And then other uh, seasons, like last year, you know, we, you don't hear anything. Last winter, Laura and Rob spent their 12th season in Tuolumne, and they'd really started to get the hang of things. And it's still where we feel like where we belong. Our jobs are a lot, are likened to like that of an astronaut who is, you know, only so many people have walked on the moon. Only so many people have experienced Tuolumne in the wintertime, especially in a winter of like last year. They spent weeks preparing, buying and shuttling food up to their cabin in Tuolumne. The cabin is small, but it has solar power, running water, a wood-burning stove, and a backup generator. There's cell service and Wi-Fi up there, though storms can make those a little bit spotty. They're isolated, yes, but it's fairly comfortable, at least for Rob and Laura's standards. So last year, when they headed up to Tuolumne, they were ready for some time away from the real world. They visited as many friends and family as they could, and they set out for the mountains. For the first time, there was enough snow by their start date for them to ski the 10 or so miles in from Levining Canyon. They arrived at the cabin on December 4th, and one of the first things they unpacked was a snow globe. They've brought it to Tuolumne nearly every year since that first dry winter, hoping it would bring them lots of fluffy snow. We shake our snow globe every season <laughs> to get it started. On the snow globe is a haiku by Matsuo Basho. Winter solitude in a world of one color, the sound of wind. They shook the snow globe and prayed for snow. After the break, a record-breaking year begins. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. 
Support comes from Kuat Racks. The Piston SR is a single rail bike rack that easily mounts on most roof racks, overlanding utility racks, and truck bed rack systems. The dual ratcheting piston arm grabs your tires and makes no contact with the bike frame. So that's better for your bike, right? Plus, the rack has an all-metal construction, genuine Kashima coat, and integrated cable locks. That translates to being super burly. Kuat has taken their Piston Pro X and elevated it. Find more details at kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this rack. Ten days into their season, when they posted their first blog update, the snow depth was already 54 inches. As they settled into the rhythm of life in the backcountry, the snow kept falling. Every day, it's just like, wow, you just think the sun's going to come out and, and you're going to get a break. And like, it, it, it just never happened last year. By early January, the base depth reached 100 inches, the earliest Robin Laura had seen Tuolumne reach that milestone. Waves of snow blanketed the meadows, and the wind created magical sculptures. You can hear the smallest of sounds on the, on the snow, which is pretty incredible. It was just them and the wildlife. In the wintertime, you get to see all the, the tracks of all the different wildlife that goes through there. And we could barely get around with, you know, bad powder skis with a ton of surface area. And it was really challenging for the wildlife to get around last year, too. So we saw very little signs of it. Laura and Rob don't just look for wildlife around them. They also monitor a series of wildlife cameras to see what's around when they're not. But with those motion sensor cameras, you capture a whole winter's worth of animal travel. And in the most obscure locations where you go up there, like near the crest of Sierra Nevada, but you know, you look up there and you're just like, there's no way any wildlife would go up there for any reason. But then suddenly you'll like see a spotted skunk at 12,000 feet. I'd see her about a red box. <laughs> we were debating even going up to, to look at that camera because it was a challenging place to get to. I had to put cramp, crampons on and pick our way through the kind of steep rocks and ice. And we're like, well, we're all the way out here. Let's go have a look. But our mindset was there's, there's no way and wildlife are using this as a as a corridor. Ever again, reminded us of all the things we don't know. Yeah, about a place and just yeah, just the secrets that the, the those mountains hold as far as you know. These foxes have been out there for forever, but they're so rarely seen by humans. They just they're kind of mountain vagabonds like us. They like the solitude and they just cruise around. Yeah, spending that many winters out there. It's pretty neat to be more in touch with nature and realize that we're not the only inhabitants out there. By mid-January, another five feet of snow had fallen on Tuolumne Meadows. And for Rob and Laura, life was starting to feel a little like Groundhog's Day. Much of the snow was wet and heavy, classic Sierra cement. And they envied the birds that could fly around so easily. It was, it was just really surreal. To, to wake up to that scene every day. Just like when you think you got caught up on, on shoveling, um, we would have our regimen of like drink coffee, eat front bar, <laughs> walk up Lumber Dome, stretch the legs, grab the shovels, and then rinse and repeat. But that's if one thing we, we've learned in our, our years as the Tuolumne Winter Rangers is, is every year is different and the, the storm door can be open and, and you know, it, it can be quite stormy but it can close just as easily for long periods of time. Last winter, it, it was just relentless. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, it was just one storm after another. We were literally in a snow globe. We didn't really travel beyond, you know, a mile radius for weeks on end because just the trail breaking was prohibitive. And our world was smaller because of our inability to venture very far away from the cat. In between storms, Rob and Laura could catch up on shoveling and enjoy the south-facing slopes alongside the chickadees and nuthatches. Even after 12 winters in Tuolumne, they'd never seen anything like this. But soon, avalanche danger grew, limiting their ski touring range. And they were spending most of their days shoveling, trying to keep Tuolumne's infrastructure intact. Few visitors were coming up to the meadows, and they felt like they couldn't get a break. But for Rob and Laura, the opportunity to disconnect was invaluable. In their blog, they wrote, All of this is a big reason why we're here. Wilderness, simplicity, to experience discomfort so that you don't take creature comforts for granted. There's really uh, no other place we'd rather be than up there. So we buy all of our groceries in October in anticipation of not coming out. It, you know, the things that we get to missing the most are the fr- fresh vegetables and fruits. And we're, we're fortunate uh, when friends come to visit, they'll bring a head, a head or two of kale and couple of avocados and some tomatoes, but we don't miss it so much that we want to make a, a trip to town. By early February, the Tuolumne snowpack was at 200% of average. The sun finally came out, though, and Rob and Laura skied around, noticing tracks from weasels and jackrabbits. There was a 10-day period in February where it was dry. And we're like, okay, there's already 100 inches on the ground. It had already snowed more than it had in multiple years past combined. So maybe, they thought, things would lighten up from here. Sure enough, at the end of February, the faucet opened again. Between February 21st and March 7th, another 133 inches of snow fell on Tuolumne, 109 of which came during their 10-day snow survey. And these snow surveys are a big part of Rob and Laura's jobs. At the end of each month, they set out to six different sites to measure the snow depth. Visiting all of the sites usually means around 60 miles of trail breaking and a handful of nights out at the park's more rustic backcountry huts. They're just like these 10 by 12 shacks where you just melt snow on the wood-burning stove and perform the snow survey courses adjacent to those cabins that are, uh, you know, an endeavor to up to 10, 12, up to 14 miles from like our stations. The snow surveys are always a bit grueling, But this year, one of the biggest challenges was digging out the huts. When they arrived at the Tioga Pass hut, only the chimney was sticking out of the snow. We'd get up there and have to take our avalanche probe, not to, you know, for avalanche purposes, but just to find the corner of the cabin and then dig the entire depth of the avalanche probe, which is what, 210 centimeters or, you know, over 10 feet deep into the snow just to find the door to the cabin. And then you get into the cabin, and, and in such a windy area, it's just silent uh, and thankfully warm because snow is insulating. So it's like having a, a snow cave. Rob and Laura dug a tunnel to get into the hut, but once they were inside, they started to worry. We just got in b- before dark, and they were calling for some snow that night. So we figured uh, maybe we'll get up a c- every now and again in the night and see if our escape route is, is getting snowed in. But they were so tired from their big day that they slept through the night. 
and it ended up snowing more than they had forecasted and the wind on toga passed and it was completely filled in so we were essentially buried you know inside the cabin laura and rob managed to dig themselves out of the hut but it reminded them of the seriousness of their situation as february turned to march yosemite national park officially closed to visitors and they felt more alone than ever part of our jobs up there is to to uh, maintain a lot of the infrastructure up there. And it got got to the point where we could only focus on uh, on our, ourselves in, in our living quarters, you know, for our own personal safety. Rob and Laura's whole world became small. It was just them, their cabin, and the snow. Their solar-powered electricity stopped working, and they began relying on just their wood stove and generator. They played games, shoveled, cooked, and shoveled some more. They were mostly positive about the winter they were having, but sometimes their evening conversations would turn to worst-case scenarios. The thing about living and working together in such an isolated environment, you know, we really learn to depend on one another. So, and that includes making good judgments on winters like last, where, where you are isolated, and help is a long ways away. So something as simple as, not simple, but if, if we were to get appendicitis, you know, what's, what's the plan here? The helicopter can't fly. One of us is unable to ski. We do have two, two snowmobiles, which would be, with, with that snowpack, of, of very little help. So we had some evening meetings, right, where we would play the what-if game, come up with the best plan. Ended up being, say, it would be just, let's hope, let's hope this doesn't happen. Let's hope for, the, hope for the best. Usually, Rob and Laura have internet and cell service. So even though they're physically isolated, they can still check in occasionally with friends and family and update their blog. But during this round of storms, they were down to just an emergency satellite beacon. Checking in with our supervisor saying, yes, we are live today. (laughs) Press the OK button. In years past, Laura and Rob would get a good handful of visitors every month. There's a ski hut in Tuolumne, and visitors would tour up to the park. Friends would visit, and they'd get a break from being each other's only company. But this year, they often went weeks without seeing anyone else. But despite this remote nature of their work, Rob and Laura didn't have much downtime. And when they could rest, they were exhausted from how physically demanding it was to move around in that much snow. With the arrival of the spring equinox, Rob and Laura were ready for some sunnier skies and warmer weather. But no, in the second week of March, it snowed another 50 inches. Four more feet would arrive before the end of the month, giving them some time to reflect on what they'd learned after 12 winters in Tuolumne. Looking back, they thought about the spring of 2015. It was their fourth season as winter rangers, and the Sierra Nevada recorded not only the driest winter on record, but likely the driest in a millennium. The settled snow depth at Dana Meadow that March measured just 11 and a half inches, while this year, Rob and Laura measured 162 inches. All winter, the Paluskis had been looking forward to a March trip with friends to celebrate their birthdays. They would leave the meadows and head down to the east side of the Sierra for some much needed relaxation and soaking in the hot springs. But as the date of their trip neared, they had to face the facts. Up until the day before, we are like, we can pull this off, we can do it, we can go out and have this big celebration of life with our friends. And of course, Mother Nature 
said no and just closed the doors once again. There was just too much snow and too much avalanche hazard to safely get out of Tuolumne. They stayed put. As March turned to April, warmer temperatures finally arrived. It had been the snowiest year since the surveys began in 1930, with an average depth of 177 inches across Tuolumne. And on April 11th, they heard the official call that spring had arrived. When we finally heard our first robin, we were almost in tears <laughs> because we made it. We survived. We're just like <laughs> high five. <laughs> The days were getting longer, the spring skiing was starting in earnest, and they could finally relax and marvel at what a year it had been. Even still, as the end of their season approached, they weren't ready to leave. When you have Yosemite as your backyard, you never have enough time <laughs> to see or explore everything. The bears and coyotes started to emerge, and the great horned owls showed up to bid them farewell. It's a bittersweet feeling. I think normally we have closure because we start hearing the snowplows and we're just like, okay, it's time when you start hearing those noises and the, the silence and the solitude have been broken. It's just a natural transition. Um, last year, you know, we just skied out with our backpacks and then pretty much skied to work down south in the southern Sierra into our ranger stations out, down there. But Fortunately, we're leaving one great place for another. We're very fortunate in that regard to have made it to work one season in the central Sierra and one season in the southern Sierra. So it really hasn't felt too bad when it's time to leave. The pace definitely changes. By May 1st, Rob and Laura packed up and skied out of Tuolumne. Just a few weeks later, they skied into their stations in Sequoia Kings Canyon to begin their summer there. I think earlier on our career, it was like more of a shock to the system hurtling down the highway, no longer at your own personal pace, but in a motor vehicle. But I think because we've made these transitions so many, multiple times, that our, I think we are also kind of, it's part of our natural cycle, just like the bears emerging from their dens <laughs> in the springtime. We, we, we just kind of know it's time. During their 28 summers together in Sequoia and Kings Canyon, and now 13 winters in Tuolumne Meadows, Rob and Laura are all in. Their jobs require total commitment, but they wouldn't change it for the world. As a result, they don't really travel much, but they also don't really mind. For me, it's not as much about the different places. It's about what you do in these places and the, the wildness of them and the, the wildness of places like Tuolumne Meadows in winter and Sequoia and Kings Canyon wilderness. It's not like unparalleled on Earth, these roadless areas that have been set aside. We're so lucky. Being in the same place for so long has let Rob and Laura see the small details that many visitors pass over. Waiting for elusive ski lines to fill in, noticing animal tracks in the snow, watching the way the sunlight dances on the slopes. They've had a lot of fun and a lot of challenges. But what they've gained more than anything is the unique opportunity to know a place intimately, to see it all, the good and bad, day in and day out. I never felt like we were, I was missing out on anything, you know? I mean, it, imagine going 10 months self-propelled only 
on your hiking boots on on your feet in the summer and on skis in the winter and like laura said that pace suits us so well and i, I think a lot of people could benefit from slowing down and appreciating those finer things but when you're in one place intentionally or unintentionally it slows you down to appreciate you know a butterfly floating by or the clouds and and i think in this busy society right now it's really actually kind of important to slow down we're super fortunate because we're not just visiting these amazing places in the sierra this is our, our livelihood this is where we work we don't take that for granted or, or take it lightly and it was, it was never our plan to, to work as wilderness rangers as we were growing up or going to school we're fortunate that it's sort of evolved this way but after after my first summer in the sierra I mean, it was in my this place is, is in my blood and it would be seemingly impossible for me to leave at this point and all this time they're not just getting to know Tuolumne intimately, they're getting to know each other on a heightened level. We are an extreme example of a lot of times not even having to talk, but just to know exactly what one another is going to say. But that's when we can get into trouble, too, because we can make these presumptions about how one's feeling or you're interpreting something. So, so. We're still learning things about one another as much time as we've spent together and as much as we think we know what the other's thinking, she surprises the, the heck out of me to this day. For Rob and Laura, loving a person and loving a place, it means that the more you think you know, the more you realize there is to learn. After another summer in Sequoia Kings Canyon, Rob and Laura are back in Tuolumne for their 13th winter season. Bald eagles accompanied them as they skinned up the road toward the cabin, and a great horned owl lulled them to sleep on their first night home. For me, the, the biggest thing is returning to this simple, non-mechanized world, living and working in Tuolumne Meadows affords us, and getting to wake up every morning in, in, in a place like that even though we've done it as many times as we have, each morning, each sunrise is different. I can be go, 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 but <laughs> that's what um, I learned from Rob is to, to, yeah, slow it down, be in the here and now, appreciate one another, appreciate nature, and be grateful for what we have every day. Thank you, Rob and Laura, for sharing your story. I hope you two are enjoying all that freshly fallen snow up in the high country. I'm kind of jealous. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website. Music today from Brian Bombadil, Joya, Roma49, and Garland. The tracks are courtesy of the artists or track club. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find all the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Lauren Delani Miller with additional production help from Ashley Langholtz, Becca Cahal, and Evan Phillips. Illustration by Walker Cahal. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. And happy winter. <laughs> <laughs>